0: What are the two things you're told at a party, the two subjects you're told never to talk about? Religion and politics. And we are going to jump right into both of those today. We're going to see what kind of fights we can start today. Why in the world would a preacher decide to mix those two things in a sermon? Well, here's the the short explanation. Whenever things that are happening on the national stage intersect with what's going on in our little world... People who do what I do should speak up. We should talk about how God's Word has the answer to all of these things. Last week we talked about six C's, six questions you need to ask to figure out whom should receive your vote when you go to the polls. If you haven't already voted on Tuesday, it's time to vote. Christians are expected to uh, honor and respect the government. But we have a a part in in electing that government. We have a, a duty that we're supposed to carry out. And so um if you will use these six C's, these six questions, you can apply these six questions to any candidate in any election at any time in history, and it will boil down who should receive your vote, and it will help you make that choice. Now, today I want to ask a couple of BFQs, big fat questions about religion and politics. And this is on your listening guide, or if you're following along on U version, it's on there as well. BFQ number one. Can we include God in the national conversation? Okay, I know you say that, but it's not politically correct to include God in the conversation. I don't give a rip about being politically correct. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I've worked on that all week. That's the best I got. There, According to Jesus Christ himself, he is truth. Truth has a name. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And according to truth, Jesus Christ, you don't get well from your hurts, habits, and hang-ups, all the issues of your past, until you meet Him and turn over all of your life to His care and control. It's what we talk about in, in Celebrate Recovery, but it's what we talk about all the time here as well. Truth has a name. But let me take this a step further. I don't believe an individual can ever reach their full potential, r- uh, find their purpose in life, and feel... Uh, purpose-filled, and joy-filled in life until they meet Jesus Christ's truth. I also believe that no nation can stand for long who has turned their backs on God. Because you are accountable to the Creator, and humility says, I'm thankful for all the things that I have, and I'm thankful to that Creator God who made me like this, who put me in this incredible country, who gave me certain rights from birth, actually from conception is how I believe it, And we need to be a nation who honors that creator God. But in our country, it has become not cool to talk about God publicly. And I want to ask the question today, why is that? And the answer may surprise you. It's not because we're more educated. It's not because we're a people of science and not of religion. The reason we don't talk about God, the reason we've removed him from the conversation, is because we're affluent. Say, what? It's because we're rich. Now I want you to follow this logically. Affluence and humility do not get along, do they? Because you know this to be true. You know that some of the most arrogant people that you've ever heard of or even in your circles that you run around in are the most wealthy people. As if their wealth puts them on a higher plane than people who don't have money. But let's take this step farther. Let's just really cut to the chase here. Examine your own life. And if you'll be honest, I bet you'll admit that you used to be a lot more humble when you had a lot less stuff. Something about accumulation of stuff is just the opposite of being humble. And so I think that maybe we as individuals and maybe we as a country should adopt this next verse, these verses as our motto. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches... Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? If I get too wealthy, I may think, I did this. I may look at my stuff and say, This is my stuff. I did this with my power. My hands did this. Who are you, God? Or the opposite side, if I'm too poor. I may steal and thus insult the name of God. So, so the writer here is saying, God, I don't want to be too rich because, because then I get cocky and I don't want to be too poor because I might do something stupid. If, if I'm, if I'm in poverty, I might do something that would cause harm to your great name. God, help me to be content with enough. And I guess that's the problem is defining enough. The United States is 236 years old as a country. Would it be safe to say that as we have grown older and as we have gained more riches, more affluence, would it be safe to say that our country is more and more, more and more people uh, individually and nationally are asking the question, who is the Lord? Is that a safe assumption? More so than 236 years ago? More so than 100 years ago? More so than 50 years ago, people are asking the question, who is the Lord? The reason is not because... We're smart, smarter than we used to be. The the reason is because we're more affluent than we used to be. Affluence, here's the second thing on there. Affluence and dependence do not get along. The more affluent you become, the the less dependent you become, the more arrogant you become, and the less you feel you need God because I've got it all. The power of my hand has done this. Who is the Lord? And the ultimate irony is the reason we've turned our backs on God... Is because we've been blessed, so blessed by the very creator God that we now deny nationally. Nations have been doing this for thousands of years. It's not new to the United States. I want to go all the way back to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And show you that thousands of years ago, nations were doing the same thing that we're doing today. In this book, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. The uh, Israelites have already wandered around for 40 years. And what was going on was for 40 years, God was waiting for all of the whining, ungrateful, complaining Israelites who refused to obey God. He's waiting for them to die. The only people that got to live were the people under 20 years old and Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two over 40 that got to go into the promised land because they were the two spies who said, God is for us. God says, let's take the land. Let's take the land. The other 10 spies denied it. And God said, okay, you're going to wander in the wilderness one year for every day you spied out the land. They spied out the land 40 days. They wandered for 40 years. And everybody who whined and complained died. God says, now that I've got your undivided attention... I'm going to give you some instructions before you go into the promised land, and I'm going to let Big Mo tell you, Big Moses tell you what I want you to, to to know. And see, this is you got to picture this. This would be like the Super Bowl, the World Series, the World Championship, the National Championship. Everything rolled into the one. This would be the coach calling this all together and saying, "Men and women, we have." Waited our whole lives for this day. Moses is gathering together. You've got to pay attention. This is why we're together as a nation. God chose us. We went through slavery for this. Go all the way back to Abraham. God promised way back at Abraham that at this point we get to go into the promised land. And he says, there's two things you must pay attention to when you walk into this promised land. And he talks about it in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 6. I want you to listen to these verses. And I want you to see, I want you to tell me if these verses are relevant to the United States today. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. Okay. I didn't put this on your listening guide, but you might just write this down. This has kind of been what's going through my mind for several days. Two things. Law, L-A-W, and awe, A-W-E. Moses said there's two things you need to remember in this promised land. Law obeying God's law. And two, awe, revering him, honoring him. How many of you have been in a court of law? Now, I'm not asking if you've been the, the defendant in the court of law. You've just been in there, right? Let me see your hands. Who is large and in charge in a court of law? The judge. It's not the lawyer, although they think so sometimes, right? It's the judge, Right? <laughs> It's the judge. And, and when, we, when we walk in there, I've been in there many times, only a couple of times as a defendant. This was years ago, before I got serious about Jesus. Um, but when they, when, they, when they hit that gavel down, or when they enter, when they leave, or when they say something, even, even the person who has the least amount of respect for the United States, or for other people, or whatever, you see the defendant over there, man, they dress up nice. And, yes, sir. No, sir. And whatever the judge says goes because that dude has the power to throw your bootay in jail. And that doesn't go just for the defendant. That's anybody who dishonors him. Contempt of court. Moses is saying, you're about to go into the promised land. And the one who is large and in charge, God says, you need to pay attention to my law. I didn't give it to you. They're not idle words. Earlier in Deuteronomy, he says these are not idle words. These words are your life. He says you need to pay attention to the law, obey the law, and you need to honor, revere, awe, God. Okay. The founders of our country determined that we were not going to be a nation with a king, that we were going to be a nation of law. And they based a lot of of our laws on Judeo-Christian interpretation of Scripture and and not everybody agreed, not everybody was a Christ follower, not everybody took the Bible seriously, But but the national conscience said, we have a creator God, and we are going to honor him. We're going to be a nation of law, and we're going to make sure that we honor the God who gave us all of these rights. Now, in the next few verses, um, Moses explains all of the stuff that's going to be in the promised land. And, and you could kind of look at the United States and you could look at all of our natural resources. You could look at where we are. We're, we're in between a, a couple of countries. Um, we're, we're, you know, it's pretty easy to defend our borders on the east and the west. We are a, a, a country that has unbelievable national resources, right? How many of you chose those resources? How many of you put the United States on the map where it goes? How many of you have any control over any of the national resources or treasures that we have? Any of you? Did you choose all of that stuff? No. The Creator God did. And right in the midst of that, and what He's telling the the Israelites is, you're going to have some great stuff in this land, but you better pay attention to certain things. Skip down to verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Moses saying, remember to be thankful. Is it human nature not to remember to be thankful? Do you have to teach your children to be thankful? Did your parents ever get mad at you for not being thankful? Did your spouse ever remind you that, just say thanks. All right? okay. It's human nature to forget. It's human nature to say, why should I thank God because I did this? It's arrogant, but it is human nature. Um, It's as if Moses knows what's going to happen because in verse 11, he's looking into the future and he says, here's going to be the problem. But that is the time to be careful. When? After you've eaten and been satisfied. Our country provides all kinds of stuff, really all the things we need, more than we need. He says, when you've eaten and be satisfied, be very careful. Beware that in your plenty, this is your affluence, in your riches... Do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations and decrees that I'm telling you today. And they're thinking, how can we ever forget? And Moses says, you're going to forget. You're going to get rich. You're going to think you did it on your own. You're going to turn your back on God. And he says, this law and all thing, I'm being very serious. No matter how rich you are, you better pay attention to God. You better obey his laws and you better honor and revere him. Moses says, "God's going to bless you beyond your wildest imaginations, and the temptation is going to be to lose your dependence on God. That's what it means to forget the Lord, your, your God is to lose your dependence on Him. Things are going to be so good that you'll become arrogant and you'll say, "Who is the Lord? Who's done all this?" Verse 12. "For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be very careful. In other words, when your garage is full. Now, they didn't know about garages. These were people of tents. What's a garage? When your tent is full and you start building nice houses and you need more storage rooms. We know about storage, don't we? We got so much crap, we have to go rent a room to put our crap in. Right? He's saying, when you get so much stuff, be very, very careful. Because at that point, it's when you turn your back on God. And he says, okay, Moses reminds him, you came from very humble beginnings. God brought you out of slavery. He provided food and water for them. They didn't have to go hunting for 40 years. God provided. Their shoes did not wear out. That's a lot of walking 40 years. My dad still still has shoes from 40 years ago, but they don't look good. I've looked in his closet and I'm going, oh my goodness, dad. Those are still perfectly good. I'm like, you're blind. How do you know? He really is. He's blind in one eye now. Can't feel the of one hand. Throw this stuff away. Somebody might need it. Nobody's going to need that stuff. Their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years because God provided for them. Verse 17. Moses is going to say to them, don't you dare think you pulled this off. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for whom? Me, a lot of me going on there. When you look at your, at your life and you go, I did this. And you pat yourself on the back and you're proud. I did this. That's when you're going to turn your back on God. And when you think you've done it in your own power, you think you don't answer to anyone. You think you aren't accountable to anyone. When an individual or nation loses their sense of divine accountability, that's when we begin to treat other people unjustly. This goes for any nation, Christian nations. If you think you did it, then you'll say, what's mine is mine, and you can't have any of it. And then it's a very short step to, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it from you by force, if necessary. Justice flies out the window when we think we are powerful. The American way is awesome when we're accountable to God. Capitalism, the free enterprise system are awesome until we leave God out of the equation. When we take God out of the equation, it becomes an excuse for hoarding and injustice. And where hoarding and injustice come about, you have to enact more and more laws to try to control ungodly people. The problem is not the system. The problem is the people in the system have turned their backs and are saying, who is the Lord? The American dream is a nightmare without God. Verse 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Is this on your listening guide? I don't remember if I put that on your listening guide. You need to underline that, that segment that says he, it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. I, I have this underlined on my copy here. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. This verse right here is exactly why I tithe. I give 10% of my income, not just the income that the church pays me, but any income I get extra. If I do a wedding, I get paid for a wedding, I give 10% of that. Lawns that I mow, I give 10% of that. Actually, we give a little bit more than 10%. Because this right here says, God is the one who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And and I believe that if I don't honor God with, with my wealth, not only does God give me the, the ability to produce it, but he can take it away. God says, I'm supposed to use my talents in building up the kingdom of God. Awesome, I agree with that. The the, the Bible says that I'm supposed to use my time to honor the kingdom of God. Yes! But you want to find out what you really honor? You look at your money. I could look at your calendar and your checkbook and I can tell you whether you're honoring the Lord. No one can be on our board of directors here at the church unless they tithe. Because I don't believe God is going to bless our church if we got people making financial decisions and they're not giving. No one can remain on staff if they're not a tither. Because this says God is the one who is who gives us the ability to produce wealth. And he can take it away. And I'm not going to have God curse our church because we have people in leadership who are stingy with their money. That's when we find out what you really believe. It's also why I ask the compassion question. When I'm looking at a candidate. I do not care what you say about how much you care about poor people. If you don't do anything and you don't give anything to poor people. You don't care. I'm talking about candidates here. I look at their contribution. And, and if they don't give a significant amount. See it. Here's the deal. It's not even the amount of money. You know why God did 10%? 10% of $100 is what? $10. 10% of $1,000 is what? It's a chunk no matter what. If you only make $100. I remember in college doing this. In college, I made $25 a week. $20 a month went to God because I said, God, you're in charge. And there were times that I would pray and God would do some stuff, some stuff that nobody knew. People would come and, and, and give me stuff, give me groceries. Sometimes my, one time my pastor said, hey, man, we don't think we're paying you enough. And I'm like, you're right. And he said, we're going to bump up your salary. And it was at the time I was about to have to go talk to him. God does stuff when you trust him. It's the in fact, I'm getting off script here. Some people's eyes are getting big. In fact, it's the only time in scripture that God says, I dare you. To put me to the test. Give and see if I won't open up the heavens. And pour out so much that you can't contain it. But really some of us just aren't willing to trust God with our money. And and we find out what you really put your trust in. If anyone in the world should understand it, stand this concept, it should be the people in this room. It should be the people of God. Verse 19... Would somebody turn on the AC, by the way? I'm dying. Thank you, little Jamie. Lots of people. I'm sweating, but I'm always sweating, and I see a lot of y'all sweating. Maybe that's the topic. Maybe that's what it is. Verse 19, If you ever forget the Lord your God, this is, these words scare me, people. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. God's talking to the nation of Israel here. <laughs> And he says, if your allegiance, if you give your allegiance to anything or anyone other than me, you become my enemy and I will not defend you. In fact, I will destroy you. Who aren't you glad we're not Israel? We don't have a covenant with Israel like Israel. We don't have a covenant with God like like um, Israel did. We're not accountable to God like Israel was, are we? Just in case you don't know the rest of this story, Israel turned their backs on God, started worshiping other gods, started saying, who is the Lord? And do you know what happened? God destroyed them like he said he would do. Verse 20. Then he goes a step further. He says, like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. He's saying, like those nations that I didn't even have any covenant with, the nations who didn't know me, the nations who defied me, he said, I destroyed them. You, the people of God, if you do not obey, I will destroy you. So if we keep heading the direction that we're heading, is it logical based on this passage and and just what you know of Scripture? Is it logical that the Lord will destroy us? Yes. Here's the thing. Here's the twist in the story. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to continue going the direction that we've been going. Because not so long ago in this country we honored and reverenced the Lord. D-Day. Do you know what happened on D-Day? I know you know about the battles. Do you know about the spiritual stuff that was going on on D-Day? Just in case you don't, I've prepared. Everyone knew there was going to be a decisive Time, a D-Day, and, and really just means the day of, that the battle was going to start. The day was supposed to be June, 4th, June 5th, but there was bad weather, so it was June 6th, 1944. Everybody knew it was coming. The secret was nobody knew when and nobody knew where. The Germans knew we were coming. There were all these people gathered together. We'd done all this planning, and, and I was looking this up. We had over 150,000 Allied troops from 11 different nations. 11,590 aircraft were available in 1944. That's impressive. And on D-Day, 14,674 sorties, flights in support of the the offensive were flown. On D-Day, that's impressive. This massive show of of uh, military might. You could argue that this was one of the greatest coordinations of military might in the history of the world. Within 6 days, 326,547 troops landed on the beaches of Normandy and and around France. 54,186 vehicles landed in 1944. 104,000 tons of supplies were in that area to begin liberating the country from the Germans and winning World War II. If ever there was an opportunity for a nation to pat themselves on the back and say, we did this, it was by our our power, the strength of our hands that we did this. This nation and the Allies had a chance to do it, but they didn't. President Roosevelt, on June 5th, the night before, let me just read this to you. The President had also been on the radio to announce that Allied troops had entered Rome. On June 6th, he goes on the radio. So June 5th, he'd also gone on the radio. The spectacular news that Rome had been liberated was quickly superseded by the news of the gigantic D-Day invasion, which began at 6.30 a.m. on June 6th. This is the President of the United States. Here's what he says on the radio that night. Last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that the troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And I'm not going to read you all of this, but here's what he says. And so in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God... Our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give them give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard, for the enemy is strong." They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for the return to the haven of home. Some will not return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom." And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them. Help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impact of of temporary events, of temporal matters, of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men and a peace that will let all of all of men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. Holy cow. To have a man of conviction who, who says, we're going to acknowledge God. Would you follow someone like that? The next day, the New York Daily News threw out their lead articles and in their place printed the Lord's Prayer on the front page. Lord & Taylor, the big uh, store... Didn't open for business. The president of the company sent all 3,000 employees home to pray for our nation. The New York Stock Exchange paused for two minutes while everyone prayed. In Columbus, Ohio, I love this, Mayor James Rhodes ordered air raid sirens and factory whistles sounded as a call to prayer. The entire city came to a standstill at 7.30 p.m. as cars, buses, pedestrians all halted and prayed. On that day, we were not a nation who asked, Who is the Lord? We were a nation who bowed and said, Oh, Lord God, your will be done. Give us the power to endure an unholy enemy and overwhelm them. And I told you last week, see, that was, that was in the 40s. Twenty years later, the civil rights movement happened. And I told you the civil rights movement was, was enabled by our national conscience. We said, if, if, if all men are created equal... The color of their skin shouldn't matter. And so in the 60s, the civil rights movement really took shape. And, and who was the voice? Was the voice of the, the civil rights movement, was he a politician? What was he? He's a preacher. What was his name? Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., August 28th, 1963. Okay, so let's get this. 1944, 20 years before I was born, the President of the United States calls the nation to prayer and all the nation prayed. Not everybody prayed. There was a lot of people who who um, raised their voices against this and complained against it. But because of our national conscience, we largely ignored the people who said, we don't need to trust God. Everybody else going, you shut up. We're trusting God. 20 years later, one year before I'm born. I'm just telling you that because this wasn't that long ago that our country was different. Martin Luther King Jr. gets up at the Lincoln Memorial, August 28, 1963. And again, I'm not going to read all of it, but I've got some things here that I wanted you to hear. He says, now is the time to make real the promises of Democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the rock solid, solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. There's that God word again. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not the end but a beginning skipping on down he says i have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning. My country tis of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died. Land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside let freedom ring. And when this happens when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank whom? God Almighty. We're free at last. We have never in 236 years... Until the last few years of that, we've never been a nation who asks, Who is the Lord? That's been a recent development. And we cannot allow God to be taken out of the national conversation. Because removing God leads to an erosion of civil rights. We can't afford to let God disappear from the political arena. And I want you to remember this. Do not be afraid what man can do to you. Be very afraid of God. Because he will destroy nations who turn their backs on him. Let's pray together. It is high time, Lord, that the men and women of God quit sitting. On the sidelines as our nation goes to hell. We've been much too comfortable in the church. Would you stir up within us a passion to be a people who live what we say we believe? And would you give us a conviction to vote for the right people? Because without you, God, our our nation has no hope. But with God, all things are possible. I want you just to pray silently and ask God what you should do to please him? Have you been one who has who asked? Probably not out loud, but you've looked at your life and you thought, man, I've done well, and you've turned your back on God? You need to confess that to him. Have you become complacent with your time or your money or your talents, using them on yourself? You need to confess that to God. It's our time, church, to rise up and live what we say we believe. Father, convict our hearts and show us the next step to take, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting a new series next week called Deep and Wide. We're talking about how God always wants people to grow spiritually, but He never wants us to quit reaching out to people who are lost. It breaks his heart when folks go to hell Um, We're about to go have some fun before we do that a couple of housekeeping things take your registration cards fill that out If you have a prayer concern write that on the back Um, If you haven't voted don't even write this down because I would pester you about it If you hadn't voted make plans to go and vote on Tuesday Uh, It is that important and and don't ever think that one vote doesn't matter your vote matters and and I actually I saw this on Facebook. I read a lot. I, I rarely post on Facebook. Um, I know one person said because I, I wrote this thing, and I don't even know if this was in response to that or not. But she said I voted. Now I can complain because I said if you don't if you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain. I see you laughing over there. Um, I don't know if I I just laughed, but you do. If you vote, you have a right to complain. If you don't, shut up. I mean, you, you don't have a right to complain. Get out and vote.